0: In-out, in-out. I'm in. Yanni Aditzakas. This is William Hong, and you're listening to The Society Show. Monster Kill. Monster Chill. Broadcasting live, to tape, across the nation and the world, From the Lorena Bobbitt Theatre, where third and fourth generation Scandinavians still celebrate Leif Erikson Day, beautiful North Seattle. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show, and now, your host, the next president of the United States of America... Christian Patterson. Hello, hello. This is the society show. Do you believe in society's laws? My name is Christian. This is another solo episode. I'm Mr. Solo Dolo. I will hopefully be having some more guests soon. But, just so you know, I'll plug it right up front. The Society Show Now is also a stream, and I've actually, last episode I used part of a stream for the episode. This episode I'll use another part of the stream of one of my streams for this episode, along with some new material. I'm not going to make a habit out of uh, reusing content from the stream on the podcast, but I have been streaming a lot, so that's why I'm doing it, and um, and when I have guests, like they will always be on the podcast, not on the stream, but we'll get there, still trucking along on this podcast, the society show, we're going places, and we have some big ideas. Oh, Christian. I've heard great things about you, my friend, and you got a big show. For example, a really big idea I have is shortly I will be doing a best tweet of all time tournament. (coughs) This will take a long time because I will be including lots of tweets It'll be tournament style, and it will be talked about both on this podcast and on the stream and on the Society Show Twitter at society underscore show. The actual voting will be through Twitter polls, and um, I'll use the show to kind of announce what's coming down the tournament pipe, so stay tuned for that. Now, the uh, part from the stream I am about to include is actually um, me just running down some of the crazy world news that has happened in the past week or so, so I'm going to talk about what went down in the building collapse in Taiwan, there were um, uprisings and protests in Lebanon, there were... Um, there is all kinds of stuff, including um, settlers going into East Jerusalem, all that kind of stuff. So let's talk about that, and then after that, we will be talking a little bit about a blast from the past. Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone, Christopher Walken, and Sissy Spacek. Blast from the past. Talking about the Guatemalan genocide, the, the genocide of Maya people. So here is the news, and stay tuned for our feature. I'm at the Pizza Hut. What? I'm at the Taco Bell. What? I'm at the Combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. So here's a story. Norway attack suspect showed signs of radicalization. This is from The Guardian. Five people killed and two injured in bow and arrow attack in Kongsberg. Plus firefighters. Okay, never mind. A Danish man suspected of a bow and arrow attack that killed five people and injured two others in the Norwegian town of Kongsberg is a Muslim convert who previously showed no signs of radicalization. May Allah awaken the people! So this is pretty crazy, he's Danish, presumably he is ethnically uh, Danish, because they said he was from, I mean, he's a Danish man. If it was someone from the Middle East, they'd probably be like, Arab, Danish, whatever. And also they say that he's a convert, which if you're a Muslim, it would actually be a revert. That's what they call it, that uh, you're reverting back to Islam. Like that's the natural state of being. But uh, so he converted to Islam, which this is really interesting because... I I know that there's some Muslims who kind of joke that the white people who convert to Islam are kind of the most nutty people, and (laughs) maybe that's not a stereotype. I saw someone tweeting about that once, though, and uh, I feel like there's like an element of truth to that, because it's almost like becoming a Satanist in like the 80s. It's like, yeah, we know Satanism is, like, super edgy and, like, you can scare grandma with it. Like, I kind of feel like converting to Islam um, is almost like a uh, very, like, fake type of, I'm edgy. I, I listen to Marilyn Manson and I'm Muslim. Like, that's what it feels like. And that kid with a backpack said radical. I say radical. That's my thing that I say! I feel like I'm gonna explode here! Ugh. This next story, uh, this is from the New York Times. It's um about a building that caught on fire in Taiwan. Pretty sad story. Um, this happened a few days ago now. At least forty-six die as Blaze tears through Ghost Building in Taiwan. Dozens more were injured after a fire, fire broke out at a thirteen story building in the southern port city of Kaohsiung. Probably said that wrong, but uh much say Hey now. It was known among locals as the city's number one ghost building, a once prosperous property that began to deteriorate deteriorate badly after after a fire two decades ago. Squatters and gamblers moved in. Piles of debris blocked stairwells. So that's pretty sad. Like, it's basically like a flop house for, like... Homeless and downtrodden people. Um, That's super sad, actually, because presumably a lot of the people living there, presumably most of the people who died were, like, super old people or, like, super homeless. Fire! 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 (laughs) This is from CNN. Beirut's worst street violence in more than a decade kills at least six. So here's the deal. You know we're living in a society A fierce political Dispute over a probe Into Beirut's August 2020 port blast Prompted the worst violence Lebanon has witnessed In more than 10 years On Thursday After a protest descended Into deadly street battles At least 6 people were killed Um So this is like pretty interesting because if you actually look li- like the explosion in Beirut has come up like several times on my podcast like if you listen to um one of my more recent podcasts it, we talked about Carlos Ghosn who was like the criminal uh CEO of Nissan and he uh, was like Lebanese and so he got all these charges against him and then moved back to Lebanon where he was from and um, was living like basically squatting in a house that Nissan gave him in Lebanon um I mean it's technically his but with stolen money and, uh, it was actually damaged in this, uh, Beirut explosion. I guess, like, my, po- my point being, like, there's been so many, like, ramication- ramifications from this explosion. Okay, hundreds of supporters of Iran-backed Hezbollah and its main Shia ally, Amal, were marching... Wait, I saw... I thought Hezbollah was Shiites... Let me look into that. Yeah. Shia Islamist political party and militant group. Okay, let's look up a mall. My answer thing. is something called science. Hmm. I'm not really sure. Maybe they're like... It, 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 okay, they just seem like allies of Hezbollah. Um... Maybe there's... I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to it than that, but, I mean, we get the idea. They were marching toward the Lebanese capital's palace of justice when shots were fired at the protesters by snipers on rooftops, forcing demonstrators... and. And journalists to take cover so I mean that's pretty crazy to just be like shooting indiscriminately uh, like that at protesters um, especially from that distance well I mean not even especially it's just like more grotesque with the uh, sniper rifles so yeah six people were killed you know what I say protesters your ass I don't talk about my ass. Alright, so this next story, this is from Herette. Um, I, I think that's how you say it. Sorry if it's wrong. But uh, there's been a lot of little stories like this I've kind of talked about on stream. Like this kind of these encroachments that are happening into um, either East Jerusalem or Palestine that are just not really getting recognized in press. Like, we recognize it when there's, like, rockets being fired or, like, you know, protests uh, that are being suppressed. But, like, this type of encroachment is happening all the time. So... Uh, Let me read this story, headline, Israel advances thousands of housing units in East Jerusalem as Biden remains silent. So, um, they named some neighborhoods that uh, lie beyond Israel's 1967 borders. Oh, God, this is a freaking paywall. Oh, my God. Let me uh, do a little trick. Let's start here. On Wednesday, Jerusalem's local planning committee approved the expropriation of land in Gavat Hamados and approved the filing of plans for expanding Pisgat Ze'ev. Opposition to the establishment of a new neighborhood in E1 will be discussed next week with further discussions next month about a large Jewish neighborhood in Adarot, also beyond the Green Line, the Armistice demarcation line before the 1967 Six-Day War. Um so this is like when those protests were going on about Sheikh Jarrah and the uh, settlements going on there like that was like relatively not that many people being um displaced compared to what something like this could be like because she, it, my understanding is Sheikh Jarrah is a very dense um but like kind of small neighborhood and it doesn't take that much to, uh, completely change its identity, but these are, like, giant, like, these make it seem like these are, like, larger housing developments, um, considering there, there will be, like, thousands of homes. The new neighborhood in Gavat Hamados, with its 1,257 housing units, would be the first new Jewish neighborhood to be built in Jerusalem in the last 30 years. The previous one was nearby Harhoma, which Palestinians and some in the international community consider to be an Israeli plot to disrupt the Oslo Accords. I kind of want to bring up google maps and like actually like visualize this. And let's google some of these neighborhoods. Gavat Hematos. Oh, okay, yeah. So, Sheikh Jarrah is over here in this area, in the, like, historical area of Jerusalem. They're trying to settle, like, further out into the West Bank. So, Sheikh Jarrah... Okay, yeah, it's up here. Let's do a street view. Let's see what it's like over there. Okay maybe not the busiest street. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um so then they're settling more in into here. Let's see the uh let me pull up the other one. Harhoma. <laughs> yeah, why is it that like okay, like Israeli settlements to the West Bank always have this kind of, like, um, American suburb type of, like, winding development. Like, it's kind of weird. It's very, like, Stepford Wives layout with, like... I mean, this is more dense than, like, American stuff and different architecture. There's better examples. Um, Like, if you go... Israeli settlements My answer is something called science. My answer is something, is something called science. Okay, here's a perfect one. Let's look at this and see w- what is up with this like city layout. <laughs> Like, it kind of reminds me of, like, if you're playing, like, um, City Skylines and you have it set to, like, always do, like, winding streets, like, and all the blocks kind of look the same. I don't know. I'm pulling up bad examples, but uh, you get the idea. May Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel and the United States. And then another story I wanted to talk about is, um... This this situation where the the not prime minister MP I don't know um, member of parliament. <laughs> Anyway, David Ames, I'm, I'm probably saying that wrong. He was stabbed at a constituency meeting. Um I, I've kind of heard this guy is pretty crappy. it has some pretty terrible views, but uh I'd never heard of him before this. Um and the thing that's weird about it to me is it seems like that's a, a relatively common thing in the UK. Maybe like stabbing politicians um is common in other places as well i know that bolsonaro was stabbed when he was running for president but i've i mean i've heard of at least three stories of that happening um in like two british mps so like i don't really know what's up with that um I mean, I guess there's not much more to say about it. I guess that was the main thing. Like, oh yeah, Joe Cox. That was the other one. Like, I'm, yeah, I don't know. But maybe there's just a lot more security with American politicians. Or like, I mean, not not to say like random acts of violence are a good thing, even if it's like a terrible politician. Like, I do think like like that really doesn't accomplish goals it's um because it is just a random act of violence it makes whatever your causes look terrible i mean that kind of goes with that saying though um let's move on to well also like we don't really know anything about the stabber um yeah, or maybe we do, but I haven't heard anything. What do you want, Breton Trash? Um, uh, Both of these stories are from the, the Balkans, and they kind of relate to um, like Albanian ethnic politics. I mean, not really. This one kind of relates to Albanian ethnic politics. This one is just kind of a weird... I think it's a crime incident, but um, I'm not really sure. Anyway, maybe I'll talk about this first. So this is really weird. Four Russian tourists were found dead at a beach resort in Western Albania. Uh, This is almost like a a, like a horror movie plot or something like, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of like Hostel or something. Um, And they were found asphyxiated in a sauna. which, I mean, that is very horror movie-like as well. Um, they were aged 31 to 60, and they were part of a group that had been staying there. Um, yeah, this is pretty crazy. I want to learn more about this. Um, but uh, let's see. This one's a little more like interesting in terms of geopolitics. So from AP, tensions between Kosovo and Serbia resumed Wednesday after Kosovo police clashed with ethnic Serbs during an anti-smuggling operation. At least 11 people were injured. Um, so, the interesting thing about this, is, if you don't know, is that Kosovo is primarily ethnically Albanian. They were part of Serbia, like, so during Yugoslavia, they were um, part of Serbia, but they were kind of an autonomous province because they were mostly ethnically Albanian. So, they had a lot more, like, authority over what they did um, than other parts of Serbia. Um, it was kind of like an ethnic enclave. And then when Kosovo became its own country, like there was still about like 10 to 15% were ethnically Serbian and did not and do not want to separate from Serbia. So, uh, that's kind of like a background of this conflict, I I suppose. Um, The episode prompted an angry response from Serbia, which demanded from the international community, including the NATO-led peacekeeping mission in Kosovo, KFOR, to restore order and prevent wider chaos. Serbian President Aleksandr Vukic blamed big Western powers for failing to protect Kosovo Serbs and said if they don't do it, Serbia will. Um, I think a big part of this is because when he says big Western powers, um, th- the recognition of Kosovo as a state is largely led by Western powers um, because Serbia still doesn't really recognize it as a separate country, because even when Kosovo was part of Serbia, it still operated the same way it kind of is now. Like it operated as a separate government that was just part of Serbia. Um, so I, I don't know. Come- Now, before I get into the future, talking about the Guatemalan genocide, I do want to talk about three movies I saw recently that I kind of have something to say about. And next episode, we will probably be talking about movies a lot, primarily horror movies for Halloween. But I did see No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie i'm a big fan of james bond well maybe not a big fan i'm a decent fan i like seeing them and i like them when i see them but uh no time to die i'd say it's uh, on the better side of so when it comes to the daniel craig james bonds like i'd say casino royale and skyfall were good The other two were not, Quantum of Solace, that was boring, and then Spectre, that was pretty bad too. No Time to Die, I'd say, is kind of in between. It's more on the good side, but it's not as good as Skyfall or Casino Royale. The ending is interesting because they kind of went places they have never gone in a James Bond movie before um but it in general like i personally would prefer if james bond was more like stealth and espionage based it's a little too action-packed for me um but the scene in cuba is pretty cool i mean it's a big shootout scene but it was interesting Another movie I saw recently, and I frankly do not understand the hype about it at all, and I am talking about It from 2017, the movie It. Um, I thought this was actually a pretty bad movie, and there's a few standards I have that make me say this. One, the way they treat the girl is actually insane. Like, she is so extremely sexualized, even though she's supposed to be 12. And... They make her look way older than, like, all the 12-year-old boys. They also have her being raped by her dad. Um, they don't show it, and they don't explicitly say it, but they make it about as clear as possible in very pervy ways. And all of this is to, you know, like, it's all compounded on the fact that in the original It book... Stephen King wrote a 10-page gangbang where all the 12-year-old boys had sex with the one 12-year-old girl. Um, and that scene is not included in the movie. It is replaced with them all cutting their the palms of their hands and grabbing hands. So that's one thing I didn't like about it. I also really do not like when in horror movies when the evil force is entirely metaphysical like they say so many times in this movie oh the he's in our minds like Pennywise is in our minds just remember he's not real and No, I want the villain to be real. What's at stake if he's not real? Like, all these other kids are dying, but he's not real. What am I supposed to make of that? I've just never really liked horror movies that rely on, like, oh, the villain is in your imagination. And my last complaint about it is Stephen King relies way too heavily on these kind of one-dimensional character arcs. It's like, here's the annoying kid, here's the nerdy kid, here's the leader, here's the germaphobe. Like, the characters are so flat and just uninteresting, honestly. He has kind of a cheesy approach, is how I would describe it. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the Dancing Cloud. Pennywise? Yes, me Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. (laughs) And the last movie I want to talk about is uh, Hubie Halloween. Now, this is an Adam Sandler Halloween movie that came out last year. And it's interesting because Adam Sandler said, if I do not win the uh, Oscar, the Academy Award for Best Picture or, I mean, for Best Actor, for Uncut Chims, then my next movie is gonna be the worst movie ever, and his next movie was Hubie Halloween. I don't think this is such a terrible movie. Like, it is very, um, immature humor. It's just immature in a lot of ways, to be honest, but, uh, it has some funny things about it it made me laugh a few times I'd say maybe like 10% of the jokes land but that's like okay because it's just kind of constant jokes the whole movie um <laughs> and like they repeat a lot of the visual jokes like they have the scene of adam sandler like eating a chicken leg on a toilet and then like someone like opening the door and scaring him they show that same footage like five times but i mean i was amused by it it's not a great movie but i mean what what more could you expect right okay. Yo. hey you hey, missed the yokes on you my electrode, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the free break. It Rocky Bowl boy style. And with that, it's time for our blast from the past. Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone, Christopher Walken, and Sissy Spacek. Blast from the past. Now, I want to talk about the Guatemalan genocide, but first I want to, like, kind of paint a picture because it's a little, maybe not completely, maybe not completely accurate to call it a genocide, although most of the people targeted were in fact ethnically maya and the rest of the people about 13 percent of the rest were um ladino which is like kind of like mestizo they were mixed race indigenous and so in that sense it was a genocide because they did target people based on ethnicity But also there's like other elements to it, too. Like this was prolonged over a long period of time. There were times when it was more hot, times when it was less hot. But because of that, it was it just doesn't and has not gotten as much international attention. And finally, there were elements of it that were like a civil war. There were communities defending themselves Um, But it's kind of misleading to describe it as a war in the same way that the U.S. colonization of the Americas is probably more accurately described as a genocide, even though there were instances of Native Americans fighting back against the settlers. And that brings me to, like, the the element of the story I want to emphasize is that, like, The government that did this was enabled, like the regime as a whole, was enabled by the CIA in the U.S. It was intrinsically tied to the U.S. And a lot of what they were doing against their indigenous population is kind of like a modernized, fast-tracked. Um, You know, it was very rapid, but on a smaller scale version of what the U.S. did to the indigenous people of the Americas. So um, that's kind of my like reading on it is it's not that different from like the westward expansion and mass slaughter of Native Americans. Um, It's just like updated to, you know, Post or post World War II and um, kind of took a different character, but based on the same principles. So, let's get into it. So, in 1944, Guatemalans led a successful revolution to overthrow their dictator Jorge Ubico. Ubico. No, he was known as Central America's Napoleon, and he compared himself positively to Hitler. He saw himself as like a Hitler figure. Um, So the Democratic government, Guatemalan government that replaced him um, enacted a lot of stuff that was helped the people, including Social Security, minimum wage, um, universal suffrage, different like education programs stuff like that and then so in 1951 I, I don't know how to say the first name jacobo it's like jacob with an o at the end yeah jacobo arbenz he won the election by a margin of over 50 percent points so he was definitely the preferred winner um in this new government structure Arbenz's father was a wealthy German but he was Arbenz was beloved by the indigenous Maya peasantry because Arbenz advocated for a program called Decree 900 which was a um, pretty heavy-duty land reform policy. So before Decree 900, 72% of arable land in Guatemala was owned by 2% of the population and only 12% of that land was under cultivation. So Arbenz appropriated unused land owned by oligarchs and distributed to peasants. Um, This created local agrarian committees to manage the land and helped Guatemala transition away from a pseudo-feudal economy and greatly accelerated their corn, coffee, and banana production. So before, it really was this kind of almost feudal structure where there were all these landlords with massive villas and people working on some of the land, but most of it was not being utilized for production. It was being utilized utilized for these like villas and estates. This basically gave unused land back to the indigenous people who rightfully have it and so the united fruit company it was um an american corporation that controlled massive amounts of farmland and trade networks throughout the americas united fruit had major sway in the u.s government president eisenhower's staff members alan dulles and john foster dulles who i'm sure you've heard of were closely connected to united fruit And so the United Fruit Company basically wanted in on this like this um, increase in production that was created by this socialistic policy. So because of that, the U.S. government started smearing and isolating Guatemala in the global community. And then the CIA went into Guatemala and armed a fringe anti-communist terrorist group by, led by a guy named Carlos Arnaz. Sorry, Carlos Armas. M, not N. So, but the interesting thing is Armaz's forces were actually really poor militarily. Like, they didn't have much success. But they led a major psychological warfare campaign um, with the help of the CIA. Like, this is the type of stuff that the CIA, like, sharpened their teeth on. Um, but they were broad- broadcasting anti-government propaganda and... And claiming to the public that the militia was winning more than they actually were. So, b- like, they basically were using media to tell people, oh yeah, the government's losing. This caused the Guatemalan military to b- become paralyzed, basically, thinking that it was true. And Armus's forces seized the state, basically, on, like, deception. So, after Armis became president or leader or whatever his title was. He rolled back most of the Decree 900 um, re land from small farmers get, and gave it back to oligarchs. Um... Due to rampant corruption and this kind of regressive policy and just general inefficiency, Armis's government was basically made completely dependent on the U.S. economy, um, which is, as you'd imagine, what the U.S. government and CIA wanted to begin with. Um and because of the inefficiency and just general cruelty of the regime, Armis was assassinated by a left-wing presidential guard member. Um so in 1957, um after three years as CIA appointed president in Guatemala, um Carlos Armas um died, but this was not the end of the Guatemalan military dictatorship. After Armas' assassination, there was infighting among military elite and then just like a series of rig elections that only offered military candidates and then a guy named Ito Górez Fuentes became president. And this is when the early stages of the 36-year-long Guatemalan Civil War really started because Fuentes agreed to train Cuban exiles who would go on to invade Cuba during the Bay of Pigs. Guatemala was involved with this like guerrilla training. But there was also like more elements of like corruption because Fuentes he didn't really tell the military that they were being trained for this. And the U.S. gave him a ton of money for the training that he presumably pocketed. So, I mean, just uh, just imagine how much corruption was going on. It was uh, surely ra- rampant. Um, and then so when Fuentes was kind of, you know, continuing this corruption, it, corruption for years and years and years... Um, both before and during his presidency, um, left-wing military officers led an attempted revolt. But before they could, the CIA, this is pretty dubious, they used disguised planes to attack the bases of the military officers. And this is basically the beginning of the protracted and deeply asymmetrical civil war. Now, in 1966, the Guatemalan army um, received increased aid from the U.S. The U.S. is just kind of intervening more and more the more ugly it gets, honestly. I wonder if that's connected. Hmm. And so as the police and military continually oppressed and put pressure on Maya communities, They uh, started supplementing just regular old police and military brutality with actual paramilitary death squads. The death squads were given full impunity to kill basically any civilian they perceived to be an insurgent or collaborator. And uh, most members of the death squads were also members of the National Liberation Movement, a far-right political party. From 1966 to 1968, this was called the Zacapa Program, um, there were at least 8,000 peasants and as many as 15,000 people in total. Almost all of the Mayas were killed. Many of the leftist rebels were Maya because... Um, the thing is, like, Mayas were part the oppressed class, like a lot of most virtually all indigenous people. And the Death Squads being far right, not only did they feel like, oh, well, we can massacre entire villages because they are part of the like the uh insurgent forces, they are collaborators um with these like left-wing militants and so not only because of like racism and um you know anti-indigenous hatred they would kill mayas but they could also justify it by basically saying any maya person is aiding um or collaborators with the militant mayas so in 1970 the leader of the zacapa program named colonel carlos arana he is known as the butcher of zacapa he was elected president and although there were like little insurgent efforts at this time around arana declared a state of siege adding a strict curfew from 9 p.m to 5 a.m During this time, there were house-to-house searches, which led to over a thousand arrests a day in the first two weeks. And 700 people were executed in the first two months. So, (coughs) before Zacapo was president, or, I mean, not before Arana, the butcher Zacapo, was president, there was more, like, straight-on massacres. And um, But or it was more like asymmetrical warfare between... That was loud. Um... Editor's note, the sound that Christian described as loud was not a fart. It was a loud car driving past. It was more like asymmetrical warfare between peasant militias and these right-wing death squads then it became a little bit more of like a police state um surveillance state and the more like straight on conventional war type violence was minimized the Iran regime created a plainclothes secret police that used heavy surveillance and Uh, These police basically uh, abducted and murdered thousands of so-called subversives in Guatemala City. So this is another difference is they began targeting the urban population, whereas before it was more the rural population. Bodies were often found floating in rivers and mutilated, unidentified corpses were displayed in the General Hospital Amphitheater so family members could identify missing people. Many people were detained and never heard from again because, like a lot of right-wing death squads in Central and South America, that is their mode of operations, finding people killing them, making their bodies never show up again, so they functionally disappeared. Over 15,000 civilians were found dead or were never found and just disappeared during the Arana presidency. As many as 42,000 Guatemalan civilians were killed or disappeared between 1966 and 1973. In 1972, a guerrilla party called the Guerrilla Army of the Poor, or EGP, formed the same year that the Iran regime ended the state of siege policy. So EGP organized themselves in peasant Maya communities, many of them Maya themselves, evading Guatemalan forces. The EGP kind of got notoriety in 1975 because they they emerged from a group of peasants waiting to be paid by the well-known capitalist landlord Jose Luis Arenas. The EGP assassinated Arenas, then proclaimed proclaimed to the maya peasants who were there um and all and why they assassinated their boss all in ixil and in indigenous maya language um so this kind of was like i mean it's kind of weird to even think about that in the u.s like indigenous people killing capitalists and speaking in an indigenous language being like we killed him because he's not paying you join our side like that's that's crazy to think about so for after this there was kind of like a change in the Guatemalan policy they started publicly denying that there are any guerrillas at all after this kind of like assassination and uprising. But, I mean, even though that was their publicly stated policy that the guerrillas didn't exist, they still attempted to crack down on them. Um, The government viewed Maya co-ops as hotbeds for guerrilla activity, and Guatemala would periodically send death squads into Maya communities to kidnap community leaders and, you know, disappear them. And so, until 1978, most of this was pretty targeted to Kiche, which is um, a subset of Mayas, and where the EGP was by far the most active, but... At this point, there was a spread throughout predominantly Maya parts of Guatemala where they were more interested in uprising. Like, a Maya town uh, called Panzos began experiencing a lot of hardships, like unemployment, eviction, that type of stuff. And it was due to nearby capitalist interests in, like, The natural resources around them so the people of panzos and several nearby villages protested what was going on in a town square and this protest resulted in the guatemalan military opening fire on the protesters killing like an unknown number of people but presumably uh like over over a hundred probably um the shooting took about five minutes and the city square was just completely covered in blood. This was known as the Panzos Massacre and it was not unique. Like stuff like this happened all throughout like this whole like 34 year period. At this time another participant into the Zacapa massacre um became president. His name was Colonel Chupina. Um, So the last, at this point, the last three presidents were all involved in the Zacapa massacre. And this guy Chupina, he was uh, a lot more open. He openly called for leftists to be exterminated. And, At least 10,000 people protested the regime in Guatemala City, while at the same time being terrorized by riot police using gear donated by the U.S. government. Um, This led to a general strike in 1978 against public transportation fare hikes, um, and the Guatemalan government reacted harshly, you know, A lot of brutality and killing, but ultimately make concessions on the fair rates. And although they made the concession, they actually began cracking down on dissidents harder than they had been the past few years, um, partially out of fear of the success of the Sandinistas in nearby Nicaragua. And so from 1979 to 1980, at least 8,195 people were kidnapped and killed, which was um, more in a similar time span than the Carlos Herrera killings. Um, and as the protracted genocide of Mayas continued, the dehumanization escalated. The Guatemalan army believed that every Maya living in El Quiche was sympathetic to or a member of the guerrilla army of the poor and i mean honestly that might have been true but like just because they're sympathetic <laughs> it, like they use people being sympathetic as justification for mass slaughtering them um but then the, the time where the killings of guatemalans reached their highest was from 82 to 83 during Rios Montt's short presidency. Um, And at this point, they were just kind of going village to village, raising, destroying, and massacring uh, villages. People were beheaded, burned, hacked, and bludgeoned to death. Um, It's really disgusting. And it didn't even end there. It continued into the 90s. But... I kind of wanted to paint a picture of the ebbs and flows of this conflict to show that it like didn't happen all at once. It was a protracted war that m- most of the time more resembled um, genocide than it resembled a war. And I also really want to impart on people that mayas still exist like sometimes people act like mayas were basically extinct by the time spaniards got there that's not true at all um the maya classical period ended in around 900 um b or 900 uh, ad um or 900 ce or so um before spaniards arrived but that has nothing to do with um like maya people going away it's just they weren't at the height of their civilization anymore they were still there they just kind of left their older cities were living in new parts of the Yucatan peninsula and their society was kind of reformed um in a less prosperous way we still don't really know why it happened but my point is maya people still exist it's not even like they were all killed off now there are still millions of mayan people and as for rios mont who did do the most killing in the shortest amount of time he did end up getting um convicted for his crimes however um he died shortly after and there was some like back and forth in the court so he really didn't get much punishment for his actions at all but uh yeah i mean i don't have much more to say about it i feel like i've said all i've said it is bordering on genocide although not the same type of genocide as like the holocaust it was completely ugly and maya people still exist they're still oppressed and i mean maya people are still oppressed i'll leave it at that this has been the society show thank you for listening um, my name is christian you can follow me on twitter at christian is cool is spelled I Z. You can follow the podcast at, on Twitter at society underscore show. You can find out more about the show. You can learn about the society stream. You can learn about um, the Patreon, the, how to contact the show, anything like that. You can find out about all of that at societyshow.net. And with that, thank you for listening to the society show